50% of African-Americans terminate therapy prematurely. And we're seeing our clients with a 100% persistence level. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the midst of the gang wars. I was such a good worker that the owner of the Wendy's tried to convince me to not go to college. We have to add a cultural competency lens in order for therapy to work for everyone. We have pointed out a 100-year-old problem. I have lost so much time by not having having a technical person and say, hey man, you can't be sending this long thing to people. This is what a blurb looks like. I think we, as a mental health company, actually have to practice what we preach about self-care. What's up on Found Nation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for listening in. Wow, what a difference a couple of weeks has made. These are some incredibly difficult times in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I want to give a thank you and a shout out to the warriors out there on the front lines. Hospital workers, first responders, delivery folks, grocery and pharmacy personnel, as well as those who are keeping the supply chain going for our essentials. They deserve our recognition and help however and whenever we can provide it. And to all those startups and small businesses struggling to find a way forward, hang in there. You have the courage and resilience to weather this storm, and we are all in your corner as well. And of course, thanks to all of you who are doing your part by staying home, social distancing, and contributing time, resources, and donations to the many programs out there helping with COVID-19. To that end, Founders Unfound has decided to support the COVID-19 Response Fund, offered by the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. We have a special edition t-shirt in our swag store. The shirt reflects our optimism in people during times like these. The shirts read simply, Humanity Over Calamity. With every shirt purchased, we donate all profits to CDP's fund. The shirts look cool, and every contribution will matter. You can go to foundersunfound.com and click on the store link, or go directly to theloyalist.com forward slash foundersunfound. Today, you'll be hearing from Kevin Dedner, a former public health advocate and change maker who has a passion for life, quality, and longevity for black men. Kevin is the founder and CEO of Henry Health, a company that offers a digital mental health services platform through a culturally sensitive lens. Our episode is sponsored by the Trajectory Series, a new program and upcoming book from the startup whisperer Dave Parker. As always, you can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode 10 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Kevin Dedner, founder and CEO of Henry Health. Henry Health is a platform that provides culturally sensitive self-care and mental health services. Their first ecosystem of communities is built around black men. Welcome to the show, Kevin, and thanks for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm really excited to be here with you. Tremendous. So some incredible times we're going through right now, huh? Oh, man. I think we are all trying to adjust. I actually was pretty vulnerable yesterday and said uh, on my social media platform that I'm this guy who talks about going with the flow. And I, I have to admit that as much as I talk about going with the flow, I'm having trouble adjusting to this new flow. 
You are not alone, my friend, that's for sure. It is a difficult adjustment, no matter where you are in terms of the health aspects, the economic aspects, the daily routine and and family life. It's tough. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the thing is, Dan, none of us are left untouched. You know, this virus has had a way of impacting all of our lives. And so none of us are left untouched. Yeah, it's true. It's definitely true. And we'll see how it all unfolds. Uh, hopefully, is your family and, and your community doing okay? You know, I've had one distant cousin to pass away from the coronavirus, from complications associated with it. And as far as I know, that is sort of the only one in my immediate circle or family of friends who has actually contracted the virus. And, and so, you know, that did shake us because it did hit home. But overall, you know, everyone else is reporting to be safe. And in fact, you know, there are some of my family. I'm from Arkansas and I have family in rural Arkansas who recently dis discovered Zoom. And it's actually been quite interesting because it's like I think people have started to embrace technology in ways that they had never thought about before. And that was certainly the case, like with my family that's in rural Arkansas when we had a hangout a few nights ago. I never thought I'd be doing that with them. And it was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, some silver linings from all this. So let's start off with, why don't you help our audience understand what is Henry Health? Yeah, I think that the best way to describe it is that we are a teletherapy company at, at its core. The thing that makes us very different is we train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them develop more cultural humility and responsiveness. And the second part of what we are is, you know, we are building custom communities to provide self-care and self-mastery support. And our first custom community that we're building is for Black men. Nice. And so how old is the company? We start the company in January of 2018. So we are still very much considered an early stage startup. And I, I don't have a technical background. This is my first startup. And Dan, I'm sure you know there are lots of lessons to learn along the way. Absolutely. And we're going to dive deeper into that uh, a little bit later. But let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your background, where you come from. You mentioned Arkansas. That's a place in the country that I'm actually pretty unfamiliar with. It's one of, I think, the four states that I haven't been to. So <laughs> I, I would love to hear about what it's like growing up there and more about where you come from. Thank you for the opportunity to reflect on where I come from and what home is like for me. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is the capital city of Arkansas. But both of my parents were from rural Arkansas. And so there wasn't a free summer or an extended weekend in which I wasn't in the country. So, you know, I like to think of myself as this weird, quirky person who who loves the, the balance of being in the city, but I am very happy in the middle of a pasture on a horse by myself. So, um, nice. you know, that, that, and that's essentially what life was like for me growing up in Arkansas. I really think I had the best of both worlds. You know, I, I grew up in a capital city and, you know, rode the, the school bus to school. I graduated from the historic Little Rock Central High and or all those amenities of city life. But when it was summertime, I was uh, working on a farm. I learned how to drive, driving a tractor. And, you know, I, I did things that 
you know, when people would look at like my uh, physical physique thing, they couldn't could imagine how I could throw hay and pick up things <laughs> twice my size. But, you know, I learned those things working with uh, a great uncle of mine working on the farm. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that experience and the, the grit that it taught me of like how to work hard. And, you know, over, over time, I learned that it wasn't so much about working hard. It was about working smart. So, you know, I think I bring those that sort of that same philosophy even into my startup these days. And Little Rock, that's that's the Little Rock, right? Little Rock Nine, the absolutely, yeah. Thank you for uh, clarifying that. I graduated from Little Rock Central, and as you're you're right, Central High was the school that tested the Brown versus Board of Education decision. That that test was in 1957. Of course, the Brown versus Board of Education decision was in 1954. You know, it took a couple of years before that legislation was 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 tested throughout our country and Little Rock Central High is famed for that. So is it a place where some places like in Alabama, I mean, it's almost like civil rights and human justice. It just sort of permeates the whole environment still to this day. Is it like that or is it more like this was a moment in time and you almost get tired of people asking about it. Where do you think it falls? I'm really fascinated by this. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you would dig deep there. I mean, I think that we're all incredibly proud of what happened in Little Rock Central and what it meant for not only, you know, the country, but what it meant for the world. So, you know, there are these times that we have a lot of pride in that. But the truth is that, you know, Little Rock is a southern city that has really struggled with these issues of segregation and balance and racial equity since 57. The school district has, you know, been under federal court order, you know, for the majority of time since 1957. So I think it's just kind of this weird identity that you know, is something that we're we're very, very proud of. But yet at the same time, the struggle, and, and it's not just Little Rock, I should say, around these issues around race and class is still a real, very real life struggle today. Wow, that's pretty profound. And so you have this background, like you said, kind of the best of both worlds where you grow up in that environment, but you also have the hard lessons and the and what turns out to be great character building aspects of your experience out on the farm, as you say. Did those things inform how you thought about where you were going to go, what your trajectory was, or kind of what you wanted to do in life? Yeah, that's a really great question. Yeah, I think... First, first of all, I, I knew I wanted to go to college. Like that was never a, a debate. When I turned 16, I got a job at Wendy's. And, you know, listen, I was such a good worker that the, the owner of, of the Wendy's tried to convince me to not go to college and enter into the management program. And he promised me my own store. And I was like, no, nah, brother, I got to go to school. <laughs> so, But as a part of that, you know, my high school years were very turbulent. We were experiencing gang wars in our city. And Little Rock is a mid-sized city, but I like to think of it as more like a small town with a, you know, that's actually a, a mid-sized city. So the, the, the gang wars were really, you know, they impacted our daily lives. In fact, you may remember HBO did a special about Little Rock Central, about Little Rock, I'm sorry, rather at that time in our, and at the height of our gang wars. And so growing up in that area, in that period of time, for me, you know, I wanted to be something different and I aspired to be something different. And so 
community leaders and political people saw me trying to be something different. And I was somewhat adopted and cultivated as like a student leader. And so, you know, I, I thought that my trajectory would end up being like a career in public service. In fact, I actually ran for office twice in Little Rock. I mean, I thought that really? that was my pathway forward wow. because, you know, that made the most sense of like of how I could make a difference. But what happened, you know, I, I took a job. I, I started out working in political campaigns, quickly got jaded with that and got a job with the American Cancer Society and fell in love with public health and public health advocacy in that period and went back to school and got a master's in public health. And, you know, that really changed my trajectory. And I've been interested in public health since those days and like, you know, what we can do to help people live healthier lives. That's where my passion lies these days. Noble pursuit. And we're all going to benefit from it for sure. So I, I'm I'm curious, though, I think a lot of people can identify with this aspect of being surrounded by an environment like you're talking about with the gangs and sort of the drug culture with this group that you of of folks that you say kind of adopted you. Did you feel like you kind of got plucked into or out of that situation? Did you have friends that also shared those same aspirations or did you have to sort of distance yourself from the realities of your daily you know, existence around you? Yeah. So I was adopted by a guy and I'll use that, that terminology. And, and, and I think it's fair. He at that time was running a state commission and it was a, a commission created by the legislature. There it was the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission. And he basically took a group of young people and made us junior commissioners. And so believe it or not, he really created, we use this language these days to describe like, oh, that's our tribe. This is my tribe. And so he instantly gave me a tribe of young people who I was sort of aligned with. We all wanted to, you know, we were very ambitious and wanted to do great things with our lives. In fact, everyone has gone on to do some remarkable things. In fact, one of the young persons who was a part of of our group became a, uh, a public service commissioner appointed by Obama. So it, it wasn't a matter of like leaving some people behind. It was like I embraced a new tribe and I felt very, very supported in my aspirations. And, you know, we were all convinced that we could change the world. Uh, I think that's one of the, the things I miss about being young is sort of that naivety and that drive, like, oh, I can fix that. I can change that, you know? Uh, right. But that, that's how we all view the world. And I, now, I do think that, you know, anyone who has a startup or who decides that they're going to build something from scratch, you still have a little of that. But I think back about, you know, how naive we were about the world and how we could change it overnight. It's a very romantic idea to me at this point. But it is the way the world gets changed, right? I forget who, is it Margaret Mead or somebody says, right? Don't underestimate a small group of people determined to change the world because that's the only thing that ever has or something like that. But I think it's fascinating, right? If you think about the the pivot point, right? So I, I kind of think of myself in the same vein as you is like when I was young and idealistic and like we can change the world. And in fact, my mom would say that I was a rule breaker by definition just because I questioned everything. Why does it have to be that way? Why can't we do it differently? So it frustrated her, but <laughs> it helped embolden us. But, you know, there's also a, a track where you can go into despair. Not only can mm -hmm. you not change the world, but you're just a victim, essentially, right? You are a result, an outcome of a poorly run, neglected system that has put you in a place of jeopardy, vulnerability, low prospects, right? And so it sounds to me like that was a pretty important development for you. And 
as much as I know you now, you would have survived and thrived anyway. But it's really interesting as we go back in our backgrounds as entrepreneurs to see where those building blocks of confidence and vision and optimism can come from. I, I agree with you so much. I, I think it was James Baldwin was talking about when he first started writing, he simply needed one person to tell him that he could write. And, you know, when we think about sort of the writings of James Baldwin and how even along in his beginning that he needed that validation that you are a talented writer. I think we all need that. And, you know, I look back all the way to the, the point I was in high school as we're talking about. I was always so very fortunate. And today I'm so grateful for those individuals who appeared in my life and showed me or reminded me or affirmed, however you want to you know, describe it, that, that I did have a contribution to make. And, and, and I believed them. Like I, yeah. I literally believed them. I just think about it now. You know, if someone told me what I could do today. I would kind of question it. Right. <laughs> but back then, I believed them. Like I really believed them, and I think you know that is a a big part of why I am where I am today. And I'm very, very grateful for that. In fact, the the gentleman that I'm thinking about as we talk about this. You know, I was home in October and I invited him for coffee, and I said to him, you know, I just want to spend some time saying to you how grateful I am for what you did for me. It's, it's so amazing to see, how, like you said, just that small spark of reinforcement. And I think a lot of startups reach a point where they, they need that too. So I'm glad that there's ecosystems that are coming out that help for that. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. So you're in public health and feeling like you're changing the world. And I've seen your background. You had some pretty prominent roles. How does somebody in public health, did you think about starting something or were you kind of on the path to whatever the ascension plan would be in in public health? How did that switch or change in direction happen? Yeah. So it's really interesting. About nine years ago, I started consulting. I found myself one day without a job and the next day I was offered consulting contracts and, and I was off, offered a couple consulting contracts. I said, oh, I guess I'm going to become a consultant. And so I started out, you know, consulting for major foundations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's also working like for the National League of Cities. And I really thought that my pathway of what I would do with the rest of my life was like grow some renowned consulting practice that worked in the area of social impact and, and public health. But, you know, what happened basically is in the midst of managing life, you know, all of life, like I welcomed my third child into the world. I was trying to grow the practice. I rehabbed a house. Uh, life just became very overwhelming and I worked myself into mental exhaustion. And that mental exhaustion led to depression. And my depression was arresting, like it, it literally, you know, had me in bed, unable to really function the way that I, that I had functioned all of my life. And it took me a couple of therapists to find a therapist that I felt was a right fit or that I felt like I related to. And after that, you know, I thought once I found that therapist, which, by the way, today is our chief clinical officer, I thought I would just go back to growing my consulting practice. I had did fairly well. When my co-founder asked me, have you ever considered doing anything in digital health? And in that moment, you know, like this sort of 
pressing need for culturally competent care became so obvious that I could take, you know, my personal experience and build something new that could help a lot of people. That's amazing. And uh, thank you for sharing that story. It's not easy. We'll talk about this probably a little bit later, but the idea of mental health not necessarily being the same as quote unquote regular health. But again, sort of this idea that somebody kind of steps into your life and puts you at this fork in the road. But I mean, did you really think I'm going to start a company around this? Or did you just think, wow, there's got to be some organization or some entity that I could plug into to try and address this? I mean, how did you evolve to the point where you're like, okay, we have to start a company to do this and, and solve it? So Oliver was very intentional about wanting to start a company in digital health. You know, Oliver is my co-founder and he had been investing in startups and um, studying, you know, sort of technology. And he really felt like digital health was a space that he wanted to be in. So he was very intentional. And, and the truth is, when he may be listening to this, Oliver studied me. He studied like the things that I was putting on social media, sort of like my knowledge of public health and the things I was talking about. And he asked to meet with me very intentionally. Like, you know, I've watched you. I watch what you're interested in. Would you be interested in doing something in digital health? And so for me, when he asked that question, the truth is, yes, instantly I knew the answer. It, it was a teletherapy company. But to be very clear, it took him asking that question question for the possibility to even arise in my mind that that's what I should do with my own experience. You know, we, we've not, all, you know, talked about this yet, but I was also before my depression, I was also becoming deeply, deeply aware of the disparities in health for black men. And I wanted to really like raise that as a national priority. Black men have the lowest life expectancy of any population. And much of that can be contributed to unmanaged stress and untreated mental health issues. So I, I sort of had all of this cooking at one time. And then Oliver says, hey, would you be interested in doing something in digital health? And so it took him like literally, you know, turning that light on for me to see the possibility. But for me, the answer was yes. And, and when I said the yes, here's the most important thing. I had no idea of what it meant. What I was saying, I was going to do. But, but in that moment, the answer was yes. Had I known, I'm not so sure. There you go. There you go. Sometimes that uh, lightning strikes. Um, well, that's a good point for us to take a break. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Kevin Dedner from Henry Health. Hi, I'm Dave Parker, author of the Trajectory Series. The series is designed to help startup founders to launch their startups. First-time founders will learn how to de-risk your ideas. Scaling founders will learn best practices for growth. And business service founders will learn tech best practices applied to your services business. Come join us at GetTrajectory.com. So we're back with Kevin Dedner of Henry Health. And so, Kevin, we were just getting into the origin story for Henry Health. And sort of that epiphany moment where you took that big step forward and said, okay, let's go do this. What happened next? How did you begin the process of building a company around this? Well, early on, I relied 
very heavily on Oliver. Oliver had, you know, the experience in tech. And so when we started, he was able to recruit someone to sort of help us with the technical piece. And he recruited a designer. I went back to my therapist who had helped me and said, hey, what were you doing when I sat on your couch? I know that there was something different and I need you to help me replicate that experience and found out that he was using the evidence-based technique. So so I invited him to join us. I also had a consultant who had worked in my consulting practice. I invited her to join us and she had just wrapped up her PhD and was, you know, the PhD was on, on the health of Black men. And so what we started to do was build out really the the foundational thinking, like what is our hypothesis? What is our theory of change here? And, you know, we, we put together a team and we, we filed papers in Delaware. It was, you know, looking back now, it was very, you know, sort of naively done. There was so much that we were doing we didn't know to do. But I felt very, very supported by, you know, by God, you know, the universe, whatever language you want to use. I felt very supportive and I felt like very intentional on the way that we were going. And, and, and to be very honest with you, I naively just started asking people for money, investors and people who I knew. And of course, I, I was told no one all of those conversations out the gate. But, you know, something happened. I went to an innovation meeting and sat across from a guy and was telling him what I was working on. And he was asking me questions and I thought nothing of it. And he told me where he worked. And the next day I went to another meeting and met someone, Dr. Bill Carson, who is recently retired, but Dr. Carson was the president of Ustica Pharmaceuticals. Ustica, maybe, I may not be pronouncing it right, but Dr. Carson is a psychiatrist. I told him what I was working on, and he said, you know, and he was very passionate, like, I want to help you. And he said, but I tell you what, what we need to do is we need to get you into startup health. And turns out the guy who I'd met the day before was in startup health. He worked for startup health. And Startup Health is the world's largest digital health accelerator. And so, you know, maybe two, three months later, we became a member of that Startup Health portfolio, which was really very candidly the first validation that we got that we had an idea worthy of consideration. Before that, you know, we had conversations, people flattered us, but, you know, they laughed at us too. It, it goes back to the James Baldwin story about him writing, you know, you need just someone to say what you're doing does make sense. And that's so hard uh, as a startup because by definition, you're doing something that's different or you're at least taking a different approach. And so most people view difference with suspicion or lack of confidence around it as a solution and so you fight these naysayers constantly, and then you're trying to explain what you're trying to do to everybody in your life and investors and other partners. It's a challenging thing, but it is so, it's so, so nice and joyful when somebody's like, I love it. I get it. I'm in, whatever that means, right? It's such, mm -hmm. a, it's such an uplifting experience. It can make your day. Man, listen, it can be like you could be completely on empty. And every conversation that week could be a no, but that one validation that week is all you need to keep going on to the next week. That's the way it works. So let's make sure that we, we dive a little into how does Henry Health work? What's the experience like? 
right now, our core offering is teletherapy and it's web-based therapy that we offer in the states of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And so we started providing this core therapy offering last spring. And it's very exciting because what we're seeing very early here is that we have a 100% retention rate for our care plans. You know, one of the things that that happens in therapy, I'll just, I'll put this pin here for you, is 30% of people generally abandon therapy before they complete their care plan. And a care plan is about a, you know, a six month average care plan. And 50% of African-Americans terminate therapy prematurely. And we're seeing our clients with a 100% persistence level, meaning that they, they complete their care plans. So it's very exciting. So people right That's now awesome. are, are essentially getting remote therapy. Now, what makes Henry Health different is, you know, the community experience that we're building. And as you said in your opening, our first curated community is built for Black men. And very candidly, we have struggled with this idea of commercialization or is this too niche? And where we've landed is that the community is a very focused, curated community that provides like these tools that people can access within their community. So whether that be meditations, daily motivational messaging, video content that people can access. But the therapy offering is like this universal offering that is for everyone, but the communities that we build are custom. And is there a business model around this? So where we ultimately want to be is selling directly to payers, large employers. Obviously, you know, I'd imagine in a podcast like this, your listeners know that the sales cycle for a payer or large employer, employer is much slower. So, you know, right now what we're doing is we're testing some business to consumer directly. And we're very excited. You know, we're in the final stages of negotiating our first partnership agreement with a a university here in the DMV. I hope to be able to announce it within a few days. And we actually have two churches that have also agreed to offer teletherapy to their members. But where we really want to be, as I'm mentioning, is selling directly to payers and large employers. But you know, what we want to do is prove the efficacy of our theory of change in, in this period as we move to that, like that sales cycle of being able to achieve that. That makes a lot of sense. And forgive my ignorance on this, is is uh, teletherapy something that people can get reimbursed with their healthcare insurance and things like that? Hey, I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the things that we've done from day one that some of the the larger companies, it took them years to to figure this out, is we put agreements in place with payers. So we have contracts in place now with CareFirst, Aetna, and Cigna in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And so we are able to take people's health insurance as a payer, which is a really important thing because... In the mental health world right now, the first thing is, the question that people ask is, will the therapist be a good fit, right? And and sometimes, you know, the order of these questions might be different. But then after that, the next question is, will you accept my insurance? And so, 
you know, one of the things that, right. that, that I know because of my own experience, when I realized I was depressed and I asked my primary care physician for a therapy offering, he went away. He came back into the room with a, it may have been like eight or nine pages with three columns of people, of therapists who were in my network. And so, you know, when I was choosing a therapist, it was literally like any, many, miny, mo. I was about to say. <laughs> and so, You're like, pick a number between one and a thousand. And uh, okay, there it is. <laughs> and some of those, majority of therapists, by the way, don't accept health insurance. And then those who do accept health insurance, the good ones are not accepting new clients. And so, you know, there are some real barriers here that are, are pain points in this market that I think that, you know, the way that we're thinking about our technology, that we can solve for these things. So help the audience understand, I think one of the Doubting Thomas questions would be, why, why does therapy need cultural sensitivity applied to it? And why for Black men or any other group? Why does that matter? I'm so glad you you asked this question, because I think it's a really important thing to tease out. I think it's becoming very clear that healthcare has to be personalized. And I do believe, you know, like it's an important thing to establish the narrative that we're not all equal when it comes to healthcare. In fact, right now in the midst of the coronavirus, the early reports are showing that minorities um, and African-Americans in particular are more impacted by the coronavirus, right? And the underlying cause of that, by the way, is chronic diseases and disparities in healthcare that existed long before the coronavirus. But to get back on subject, in psychology, the theories that psychologists approach a session with, like the theories that people use, are based on research from white middle-class families who have experienced one trauma, right? And so when we think right. about the cultural competency of that, you know, you take me. I just described to you, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the midst of the gang wars, right? So what, you know, you can take from that is I saw a lot of violence growing up just in my everyday life of going to school. I went to Little Rock Central and there were gang fights there. So those are traumatic events. So that's trauma right there instantly. And so when we think of like these theories being... Um, rooted in research from a white middle-class family that's experienced one trauma, I think that we'd all agree at face value, we have to add a cultural competency lens in order for therapy to work for everyone. I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, I kind of set it up for the question, but, you know, I personally suffer from mild depression and I went through the same experience looking for uh, therapists and going through several of them. And the outcome that they shoot for and sort of the method that they use tends to be fairly similar, although there are some differences, but their perspective and the lens that they use to look through to provide the care is so different. And I guess it's why there are so many, because there has to be a fit, right? And, and mm -hmm. it has to be appropriate. So I, I can identify with it personally. So it makes a lot of sense to me. And it also makes sense that most industries start with what can support a majority of the consumer slash user slash patient base out there, right? I worked in the auto business and we designed cars you know, I started in the late 80s and our crash test dummies were 160 pound, five foot 10, 
you know, male builds, right? <laughs> and it doesn't take into account if you're a smaller woman with high heels or you're a larger person or you're taller. So I think this idea of personalization and using digital for that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, thank you for sharing that example. I'm always like just fascinated how when we're not intentional, what the results can be. And I never would imagine like even in testing for auto crash that there's this disparity there that's unfair. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, look at AI, right? I mean, now there's all these questions about like facial recognition, right? And how Mm -hmm. people of color are not being put into the algorithms, which has obvious effects, right? They're either uh, eliminated or discounted from opportunities or they're over false positive, you know, if it's a security issue. And so, yeah, I think the need for this, and particularly in a, in a more of a diverse society that we're living in, it's so important. So I got to ask about the name. I read a little bit about the history of the name and I love it. So I want you to talk about where Henry Health got its name. Yeah. So again, you know, in my consulting world, I've become keenly aware sort of how Black men had the lowest life expectancy of any population. And one of the papers that really became a a grounding document for me was a paper that Dr. James Sherman published in 1994. And Dr. Sherman studied cardiovascular health outcomes among Black men. And what his research proved is the sociological factors that Black men experience on a day-to-day basis increased poor health outcomes and cardiovascular health. He coined the term John Henryism. And John Henryism really is a play on the African-American folk hero, John Henry. And the story goes that John Henry worked on the railroad, was known for his power, his strength, and his determination. And when the steam-powered hammer came, was invented, John Henry was challenged to a competition with the steam-powered hammer. He won the competition, that's the important part, but he later died from a heart attack and stress. And so, you know, what we see that playing out in practical terms, what that means in places like Washington, D.C., Black men are expected to live to be, I think it's 67, while their white counterparts are elect, expected to live to be 83. So this is, this wow. is what we call John Henryism. And so a part of our vision has been evolving because what we want to do is stay true to our founding, which is why, you know, we're starting to talk about ourselves as an ecosystem of communities. And our first community is built for Black men because we want to stay true to that. So here's what we've done. We have pointed out a 100-year-old problem that payers, public health leaders are all very well aware of. In fact, W.E. Du Bois, you know, um, studied insurance documentation in the early 1900s. And he even pointed this out back then. And what we've said that this problem really deserves to be solved. And, you know, in public health, we follow the data and the data tells us what the need is. And I think when we put this data in front of people, clearly there's a need among Black men that has not been met over the years. I love that story. And I, I'm a huge fan of that, the John Henry tale. And it's such a metaphor for lots of things. But I think as black men, it definitely uh, sums up the experience, which is that you work really hard. And then you have these other things that you have to overcome on a daily basis that essentially taxes your system. You run on the red line, as we used to say in, in, in the auto business, right? And 
you run an engine at the red line, it's not going to last very long. <laughs> yeah, I I really appreciate that analogy. And I just want to say this, you know, and I'll continue to play on the car analogy. I re- remember I used to have a, before I moved to D.C., I had a 1940 Plymouth, which, by the way, I totally regret selling my car. And I made friends with some older fellows who really knew how to work on that car. And we yeah. get in the car and they say, hey, man. This thing is running too idled up. You gotta, we gotta adjust this, right? <laughs> and it meaning the engine is running <laughs> too idled, right? And right. and so you know, we pop the hood and they go up under there and they'll they'll tinker with the carburetor and do something, and the engine would lower at an easier rate and it ran much smoother. And so you know, to play on your red line analogy, what is happening with black men is that they run idled all the time. And most of us are so unaware that that's happening to us because we're just busy managing life, doing the right. things that we are expected to do. But meanwhile, our heart is beating faster, which means the blood is pumping through our veins faster, which means that there's more pressure on our organs, which means that our immune system is under more intense pressure, which makes us more susceptible to disease. Like this is what's happening to us physically. Although we can't see it, we look healthy and we seem to be managing life well. This is what is happening when we don't manage our stress well. Yeah, and it's amazing. And and particularly in this crisis that we're going through, which I want to talk about when we get back. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor again and be right back with Kevin Dedner of Henry Health. Hi, I'm Dave Parker, author of the Trajectory Series. The series is designed to help startup founders to launch their startups. First-time founders will learn how to de-risk your ideas, scaling founders will learn best practices for growth, and business service founders will learn tech best practices applied to your services business. Come join us at GetTrajectory.com. So we're back with Kevin Dedner of Henry Health. So Kevin, um, tell me, how are you thinking about mental health and what are you seeing in this crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in communities of color, Black men? How how has your business seen this almost daily evolution of what's going on? Well, we quickly adjusted internally or had convened conversations internally. And the question was, how can we be in service and of service right now in this time? And so we put together uh, a webinar series. We pushed out an infographic we lowered the cost of therapy. We actually started free wellness calls and all of these things that we put out there have been responded to well. And we were given more free consultations and people are converting into therapy. So I I think for us, it's really interesting. We quickly responded, you know, saying we know that people are going to be clearly in need right now. We wanted to make sure that people knew that we were available and that we could provide therapy right now in this intense time. But, you know, what I also realized in in doing that is that we didn't take the time internally to adjust. In fact, our therapist came up with this uh, framework, define, acknowledge, and adjust. And I basically took our team to adjusting very quickly. So we have come back now that we've sort of created all these services and are sort of dealing with the aftermath. And I'm trying to make sure that we internally adjust as well. So what's that looking like right now? So, you know, I took for granted how how much we all appreciated, you know, being in the same workspace. 
And so we've actually we just downloaded a new app that allows us to create like a virtual office so you can see who's literally in the office at any given time. And it's integrated with Zoom and also with Google and Slack. So a lot of the features that, you know, we're, we were already using. But I think more importantly, you know, outside of how we work was also acknowledging that life is different and giving people the space to take a step back and, you know, not hold themselves like accountable to feeling like they have to be productive at the same level that we were productive. I, I Obviously, I think that there's some tension with that idea because we are a startup and it's all about like getting traction, getting customers. What's your conversion rate? There's some tension there. But at the same time, I think we as a mental health company, we actually have to practice what we preach about self-care. And there's some tension in that idea, right? Absolutely. But we're we're doing that. And for me, what that has meant is making more time to take walks. I have the best yard on the block right now. <laughs> Spending time outdoors is a proven way to improve your mental health. So I've been working in my yard at a rate like I've not worked in it in years. So, yeah, I think we're all we're trying to adjust and make sure that people know that our service offering is there, which and we have seen an increase in, in people seeking services. But at the same time, I think we also have to practice what we preach here. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if you hear from or service hospital workers they, I mean, I think about them every day and it's like being a soldier in war and having to every day kind of suit up and head in knowing that this could be the day that you contract the virus or that, you know, and the psychological and just the stress of having to be on those front lines all the time is just, it's got to be pushing the limits. It's almost an extended trauma, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know for a fact that we've seen any hospital workers in in this period. So I can't say that with any certainty, but I I do agree with you. I think Dan to your point is that, you know, we understand trauma today better than we've ever understood trauma before, and I think that that means that, you know, collectively as society, we have to acknowledge that we are all experiencing a very traumatic event. And after trauma, life will never be the same. Like that's what trauma does. Trauma changes life indefinitely. It does. And, uh, you know, how we respond, how we're able to get through it and how we're supported makes all the difference for sure. So let's talk about raising money. A wonderful topic <laughs> that every entrepreneur just loves. So you're part of uh, Startup Health. Um, have you been raising money before? Are you raising money now? Where has that trajectory been for you? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm very honest about is how difficult it has been to raise money. The company was bootstrapped mostly for um, the first year and a half. This winter, we just closed a family and friends round and we were just accepted into the Morgan Stanley Multicultural Innovation Lab, which comes with an investment of $200,000. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We are on track to close our first institutional round this month. Obviously, that seems to be a bit impacted by COVID-19. So we're trying to round up all of the folks who said that they would participate in the round to make sure that they're coming in. But we are actively fundraising. And I, I will tell you, it has been 
a, a very challenging proposition to raise. But something did happen at the top of the year. And I think if, if any founder is ever honest, you know, about the difficulty around raising money, they know that part of, you know, the challenge of raising money is not, you know, is your vision big enough? The, the question is, do you have a vision that you can execute on and do you have the right people around you? And I think for me, being able to say yes to that question really happened at the top of 2020 is that our narrative changed. And we had finally put together the right team that could execute on our vision. And I think that that's why our fundraising conversations have gone much differently. That's good news. And that's a good lesson. Hey, on Foundation out there listening, this is a good kind of side note. This is an important aspect of evolving and taking the feedback signals from investors. If you really want to pursue investment, can't change your business necessarily, but Take the signals on what they think are the things that are the difference between being funded and not. And so Kevin's bringing up a great point here about how the constitution of your story can be bolstered and amplified and improved so that investors reach a point where they can't say no anymore. And that's really what it's about. Yeah. And can, can I go a bit deeper there? I think it, it took me a while. And, and I'm, I, there's a part of me that's, that's a little bit ashamed of this. But I actually think it's just a learning curve. But I'm ashamed I didn't get it quicker. It took me a while to understand the question behind the question. And I think most founders struggle with that. Like investors are asking you a question that at face value seems to be very front and center. But that's not what they're really asking. You know? Right. <laughs> There's a question behind the question. And once you really understand why they're asking you that one question, then you start, you can go to adjust what they're really trying to tell you that they need to see. And it took me a while to do that. And, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing in this space. So, you know, I'll be a bit vulnerable and, and, and talk about some of the examples that's meant for me. It, it meant for, tell me who's on your team, for example. So right. I think what some founders will do is they can get all of these people who appear on paper or who can appear on their website. And they say, oh, we have this person, this person, this person. But no, what they're really asking you, if I invest in you, who will be working on this every day as if their life depends on it? That's a great example. That's exactly right. That's a somewhat loaded question. They're not, And they're not asking necessarily for CVs or resumes, they're asking for commitment levels and relevant expertise and then cohesion, right? Have you worked with them before? Have Absolutely. You, that's what they want answers around. They don't want to know that, oh, he worked at Microsoft or he worked at uh, Procter & Gamble or she worked at Walmart or whatever it is, right? They want to know those three things. And and you're right. And, and you certainly should not feel shame about that because there's no uh, secret manual that says the translation of, okay, when, a v, when an investor asks you this, then they're really asking you know, this other thing. That is unfortunately something you learn with experience. So don't beat yourself up too much about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate you giving me a little bit of grace. So as a Black founder, one of the things we like to try to hear from our guests is, have there been specific organizations, mentors, experiences, events? conferences, people that have been helpful for you, specifically as a Black founder? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So Startup Health was the first validation we had. And Startup Health was not because I'm a, a Black man, but it was that validation. The next form of validation that we got is a group. And I would, if there are any founders listening who are just kicking around their ideas, they know that they're working on something, maybe they don't have any traction yet, is a group called the Transformative Collective. The Transformative Collective, and in particular, a guy named James Norman. I'm sure, you know, people can find James if they're looking for him. James is out in the Bay and has had some success in startups himself. And he's actually uh, leading a startup right now. But James basically brings a group of founders from around the country who are women and minorities, I should say. He brings them to the Bay, puts them up in a hotel for a week and goes over everything from how to build a pitch deck to legal to marketing. And, you know, James was the first person, Dan, who showed me what a blurb was. So, you know, when people say, oh, send me your blurb, you know, right. I had this long dissertation explaining <laughs> what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do. And he said, hey, man. You can't be sending this long thing to people. This is what a blurb looks like. And he also quite candidly taught me a lot of this sort of investor culture. When you respond to someone, instantly put them on BCC so you don't crowd their inbox, right? These things now, to me, seem very, very elementary. But, you know, when I met James in 2018, they were big game changers for me. So I really credit him. Obviously, we got the week-long experience we had with James was because I was a Black founder. But, you know, my relationship with James and the Transformers Collective has been actually enduring since then. But there were some very pivotal lessons I learned very early on interacting with James and the folks at the Transformative Collective. But candidly, I'm not sure where I would have picked those things up about tech culture, not being the person being in tech before. That's really cool. We'll put the link for James and the Transformative Collective in the show notes. But speaking of lessons, one of the last questions we always like to ask is the kind of the classic, if you could go back in time to the Kevin Dedner before you founded Henry Health and say, here's what to look out for, brother. Here's the things that I want you to either avoid or run to. What would you tell that earlier version of yourself? You know, even if I'd heard this advice, I don't know that I would have known what to do with it, right? But I, <laughs> so, that, so that's the qualifier. Like I'm, I'm giving myself some advice that I probably wouldn't have known what to do with the advice. And I think this is the case for non-technical founders, right? Having a person next to you early on who can match your vision from the technical standpoint is incredibly important. I have lost so much time by not having a technical person. I've blown through money that I, I could have saved by not having the technical person. So, you know, my advice to that, that younger version of me two years ago would be stop everything you're doing and take the time you need to find a technical marriage. Like you need to marry somebody very quickly who can match your vision with the technology. That's so profound. And I tell the startups that I counsel and mentor all the time, if they're solo founders, I say, 
the first thing you need to do is find a partner. And even if you're the technical person who's a solo founder, I mean, you can definitely build things, but having that complement of whatever it is, if it's business or customer access or sales expertise or whatever, you know, you got to have a hustler and a hacker. That's what they say, right? <laughs> so yes. It is, it, and it is so fundamentally hard if you don't have co-founder or co-founders who can help you figure out what part of the industry are we going to tackle first and what color should our logo be. So it's so important. And you're right, having a technical founder who can take your vision and your ideas and say, hey, yeah, we can build an MVP for that, or we can figure out how the back end should work for that is critical. I mean, it's certainly not impossible to do without, but it makes it much harder as you're, as you're mentioning. Yeah, you're right. So we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to make sure to leave some uh, time for you to tell the folks, how can people find out more about Henry Health? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you, Dan, for the work that you're doing to bring attention and awareness about founders like myself who are trying to build something from the ground. I really appreciate this. You know, one day on the other side of this journey, I really want to devote, you know, a significant amount of my time to to doing what you're doing to make sure that we create opportunities for folks like myself who are trying to build something from scratch. So thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thanks. It's really important. And, and I hope we can we can go deeper in the conversation one day about why it's so important. But folks can follow me at at KDetner. Our website is henry-health.com. Henry Health app is the handle for Henry Health. And people can DM me at, at K Detner on Twitter, Instagram, and email is just Kevin at Henry-Health.com. I respond to all emails and all inquiries. So people should feel free to reach out to me. Well, Kevin, this has been so great. I can't believe that the hours already just evaporated. Uh, great conversation. I could go on for probably another two hours, but we're busy with everything going on around us. So I really appreciate that you, uh, you took the time today. Well, Dan, I want to come back after I raise my Series A. So in maybe a year or so, I could maybe I can come back. We would love that. We would be. In fact, I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, after we've raised a ton of money and have lots of customers, I want to come back and talk about the next leg of the journey. Yeah, and I love that you're talking about the when, not the if. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. It's going to happen. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, Kevin Dedner, and our sponsor, The Trajectory Series. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk. Our music was composed by Bobby Cole, Neil Cross, Jason Donnelly, and Glenn Zervas. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.